Hi, this is Bo Buller, producer of Context. If you've enjoyed this feed, please check out the newest podcast offering from Cypress Grove Studios, Why Sports, where we speak to our various guests about the value of athletics as a foundation for any career path. We are interviewing professionals across various industries, discussing the impact of being a part of a team, of competition, of learning to fail, and how these lessons transcend athletics into the workplace. Our first episode, Justin Climo talks to Adam Myron. There's a link in the show notes, and we would appreciate your support. And now our eighth installment of Contacts. Hello, and welcome to Contacts, a podcast dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches sharing what they have learned throughout their career. I want to open the door into my network of contacts whose innovative, reflective, and diverse coaching knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. I'm your host, Justin Kleinel. All right, we are back. Episode number eight with Golden Anderson, head football coach and athletic director at Carmel High School. Golden, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. In, uh, in this short span, I've become a big fan of the, your podcast, so good job. Well, we're just getting started, and, and I appreciate you taking the time to come on. I really think the, the listeners will be able to glean some things from your experience. So, you know what, why don't you just take us through your background as a coach? How did you end up coaching? How did you land your first job? Any subsequent jobs? What was the process for that? And, and how did you get where you are today? Yeah, I think it started off like I think a lot of people do, Justin. You, you play a sport you love. I was somebody that was in a transition period in my college career of, of being back home between schools and having some dead time. And I know Craig Johnson, who was the coach here, who I'd known since I was in youth football, said, hey, while you're here, why don't you come help out? Put you down on the JVs. You can volunteer. And I thought this was awesome. This is great. I come help out. And quickly realized, hey, just from my experience playing two years in college, I feel like I learned a lot that I didn't know in high school. And man, some of these little nuggets I could give to some of these guys would be really helpful. And that was where you really saw the return on your investment when you put some work in and you had some ideas that are helpful, how the kids responded to it. Great age group to work with, a lot of fun. And I realized like, hey, I could see myself doing this. But of course, to do that, you're looking at being in a specific profession. It's hard to have an off-campus job that aligns with coaching. And I wasn't going to base my whole career on my off-campus job aligned with coaching. And I thought, hey, this is something I might want to do one day. But of course, I go back off to college and finish up and kind of realize, you know, maybe teaching and being with that age group, that high school age group would be a lot of fun. And so came back after graduating college in 2003 and contacted Coach Johnson and just said, hey, I graduated college. I'm back in the area. I'm going to be getting a teaching credential. If you need any help, let me know. And kind of a funny story, I remember him saying we start spring football today back in the days when you graduate college in like middle of May mm-hmm. and he said we're starting spring football today and I said great do you want me to come out there and he said I don't know how many guys will be there like, I don't know if we'll have enough guys to even have it and I said okay and we showed up there was 10 or 12 guys and he said yeah I want to have you coach on the JVs this year I said sure and so I helped Mark Spindler who's been our longtime JV coach here and I remember one of the first couple of days we were together coach Spindler said all right you're going to run the offense you're going to call the plays <laughs> and I remember thinking, I don't even know what the offense we have. What are we doing? What's everything called? And so I remember at the time meeting with Coach Johnson and just saying, hey, what do you want me to do? And this has always stuck with me, and, and it kind of does to this day. It resonates with me where Coach Johnson said, I really appreciate you even asking. And to me was, I wouldn't know what to do if I didn't ask. And, 
And his response to me was, you would be surprised with how many people would just make something up on their own and do something that they want to do and go. Mm -hmm. And so I learned as much as I could from Coach Johnson in the crash course, wanted to make sure that we were totally aligned with what he was doing. And we coached the season. And the next season after that was the 2004 season. And he had asked if I wanted to come be an assistant on the varsity, help out with the quarterbacks. I said, sure, that'd be great. And he also, he also said right before the season, as a head coach, I'm going to go up in the booth. And I'm going to coach from up there because I feel like I can remove all my emotion. I can just play call. And I want you to signal in all the plays. So I remember being extremely overwhelmed as a 23-year-old being told this. And looking back now, what it did for me was a crash course on managing the sideline and trying to do my best to manage my emotions. Mm -hmm. And having an idea of what's going on in the game and why are we doing things because I'm being able to translate what he's seen up there and communicate it to the kids, mm -hmm. deal with officials, mm -hmm. deal with the fires that go on the sidelines, whether you have an injury and communicating that back up to the booth. And also having to get the play in my head, not that I'm selecting it, he's selecting it. And then I'm having to translate that with a hand signal and get it out so that we beat the play clock and we get the play going. And then of course we evolved into a no huddle, which made everything go even faster. So I spent five seasons doing that. I was hired after two seasons as the athletic director here, which gave me a unique perspective that I didn't have before mm -hmm. as far as the overall, our small little niche in the greater good of Carmel High Sports. Whereas a player, all that existed for me was the sports that I played. Right. And I vaguely remember going to other sports where now realizing all the logistics and, and how many other good things were going on our campus and how many people were working just as hard or harder, how many programs were being overlooked and maybe not in the newspaper, but having kids that were making the same sacrifices and putting the same work in and coaches being just as diligent and detailed. So I spent two years doing that. And then coach Johnson announced that he was going to retire. I remember him sitting me down in his office saying that, and it was a surprise. I think people on the outside always thought he was just going to leave as soon as his son's graduated, but we never got that gist working with him. When he told me that, I was surprised because this has been the only head coach I'd worked for, the person that from an offensive standpoint and a way to attack a defense and things like that, that's the only person I was always working with in those regards. And then said, hey, I think you'd be a great fit. I'm going to let the school know that I think you should do it. And so I put in my application and I interviewed with our principal and obviously in the world of public education, if you're a certificated employee and you're a teacher, you got an inside track to at least be interviewed and be considered. I was our only internal applicant and got hired at that point. And my first season was in 2009 and I've been going through that ever since. People have asked, how did you get this job versus another job? I coached baseball at Seaside High mm -hmm. under Randall Bispo when he worked there. Mm -hmm. But once I got hired as the AD here, I stopped doing stuff other places Working with other coaches, um, mentors of mine like Randall Bispo and playing for a guy like Mike Kelly, working with Craig Johnston and playing for some great coaches in college. I felt like I had a lot of different perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, didn't always grow up in Carmel. So um, I grew up in the Monterey Seaside area. And mm -hmm. so I always felt like I had a different perspective on the Monterey Peninsula. I've mm -hmm. uh, been other places, went to public school all my life, but two years. Saw some things that work other places, some things that didn't work and quickly realized everywhere is unique. And it doesn't work the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I needed to find what's going to work in the dynamic that we have and go from there. And that's kind of what my goal has been since we've been here from how we've structured our coaching staff. When I first took over, I, I just remember saying, I just don't want a team of alumni being the coaches. Mm. I'm not looking to get the gang back together and just coach. So I was trying to find people that was every ethnicity from every background, every age group, mm -hmm. and try to combine that. Cause I thought that's the best way for kids to try to identify with an adult is mm -hmm. the more eclectic that group is. We have a chance to meet the needs of all of our students on the, that are on our team. And I've been our AD and, and coaching the football team since 2009.
Well, so many places we can go with that. And I think it's a perfect segue because you, for lack of a better word, were at the right place at the right time for two opportunities, the athletic director job and the football job. And going into those, you had some experience with football, but what did you realize as you got into that job and as you got into the AD job, I think there's two different ways you can tackle this. And what you realized that you didn't know and that you needed to figure out quickly? Well, I'll start with the AD point. I, I didn't know anything about it. That was my first full-time teaching job. And Carl Palestrini, who we all know and love, has been a longtime principal here and is a board member here. He, he um, had enough faith in me with our superintendent, Marvin Biasati, to hire me out of college and say, we're going to give you part-time social studies position, a part-time athletic director position. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I remember telling Carl, I said, Carl, I'm not sure about this. I've been involved in sports. I love sports, but I don't know. Where do I start? And we joke about it now, but one of the first things he ever said was, don't worry about it. If you're terrible at it, we'll just fire you and find somebody else and you can just teach. <laughs> and I don't remember that being like the biggest vote of confidence, but in a weird way, it also gave me some perspective of that's his way of saying you can fail. It's all right to fail. We all don't know this stuff and make the most out of it and learn what you can and, and go from there. So I really didn't know square one. I had one meeting with our previous athletic director and he showed me how to sign up and organize the officials how to go on a website and organize the officials. And so I always pride myself on being pretty organized, but it was really about building relationships with the other adults on our campus and building relationships with kids and building relationships with the coaches and trying to find the coaches that are going to align with the philosophical views that we have at our school. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, and fortunately, athletics is a very emotional thing. Mm -hmm. This is the first time in my life I've been involved when I wasn't involved in a scenario where the emotions were put onto my plate or directed towards me, positive and negative. Usually as a player or a coach, you directly influenced a player, did something or made a mistake or did something good. You wear the bad stuff and you accept the good stuff as well. So that was a thing that I had to get used to and really feeling that I never understood before I was in this role as an athletic director is in my mind, how I felt about how programs were versus how sometimes programs felt they were perceived which were two different things. And I really carried that with me from the beginning is they don't really experience your intentions. They really experience how the behavior is and how they feel. So mm -hmm. your intention was always to make everyone feel the same and everyone feel like they're valued and things like that. But it really came back and I've always reflected over my career, like how can I do a better job of doing that for the teams? Because kids choose what sports they go play. The media chooses which sports are on TV. Mm -hmm. A lot of programs feel like they're not viewed the same. And they want to be viewed the same. They don't need more or need less. They just want to feel like they're on equal footing with everyone else. Mm -hmm. So that was something that I really had to learn to make people feel that way. Mm -hmm. We make mistakes all the time or we, we don't do a good job of that sometimes. And that's really been a mission of mine the last you know half of my career that I've been here mm -hmm. um, is to do that for those programs, which is something I had no, I had no idea about when I started. Right. I was in my lane of being a coach for my sport or being a player in my sport or being my role in my family or my role in my profession where... I realized how many other people were influenced mm -hmm. um, in that position. So that's what I didn't know then versus I, when I took over as head coach, I had the inside knowledge, the insider training ability of being there. I'd been there and seen what had worked. I'd been there to see what I wanted to enhance. I'd been there to see what I wanted to add. I had relationships with the players. We, we make the joke when you're driving the vans to an event, the assistant coaches van is really crowded. Yep. The head coach van, there's not as many guys in it. And you realize that when you took over was you were immediately a fresh face. You're immediately somebody that they'd identified with, but then you weren't the person saying no. And you weren't the person holding the totality of the group and the program accountable. And that was a shift, not so much my first year, but as you get going in the profession and you then cycle through a new group, how are you as the head coach building the relationships 
and the foundations that you previously got away with building as the assistant coach in our program. So that was some of the stuff maybe I didn't feel like I was prepared to do when I started. It's funny that you mentioned that because you always feel like you are the van that nobody wants to get in when you're suddenly the head coach, where before that everyone was climbing into your van. That's funny that you mentioned that because that's probably the same everywhere. Something that I didn't plan for, but I think it's interesting because we're both sitting in a similar seat as coaches and athletic directors. And I think it comes up no matter how hard you try to be proactive against it. But the, the optics of how the sport that you may coach or that I may coach is somehow getting privileged over the others. I was fortunate enough when I was cutting my teeth to work for a guy named Bill Baxter that was the longtime athletic director at El Camino and the, and the girls basketball coach and, and got to pick his brain a lot. And he did a phenomenal job. And there was still always this nugget in the back of your head, well, the girls are getting more or, or how are they getting more attention than the rest of us? And, and how do you navigate that? And how do you intentionally game plan to make sure, at least in, in your mind, in the mind of the administration, you can check those boxes to you know, make sure that everybody is, is being treated fairly, if not equally, because fair is not equal. It depends on the situation and, and what's going on at the school at that time and how things have to operate within the mission of, of that particular site. It's tough because sports are an emotional thing. And, and a lot of times, as you know, in your profession, things do get said that aren't true because it's a perception thing. But unfortunately, sometimes things get said that aren't true and the people saying it know it's not true mm -hmm. um, and muddies the waters for people. And it's tough. My thing is always try to be myself, mm -hmm. but also try to be as honest and transparent with people. And that's really tough in the public school setting. There's a lot of things that you cannot be transparent about. I mean, you can't be transparent about personnel matters. Right. There's only so many things you can be transparent about with the finances. I think one of the misconceived things in a public school setting is who can control the money. We don't have cash accounts. There's ASB accounts that are controlled by the students. There's a school budget that's controlled by the principal. Mm -hmm. um, individual coaches don't just have a, a personal checking account to use right. um, for sports. Another thing that people don't realize, and, and we try to do the best we can to realize, is different sports cost different amounts of money. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not a, we can't provide for you the same as we provide for others, but the logistics of things is some things cost more. Transportation is more for some sports. Mm -hmm. So whether or not they spend the money or we give them the money, there's always this perception of, well, certain sport got more. Mm -hmm. Well, and a lot of it's based on how many students they have, what are the equipment needs that they have. But we've done the best we can in the last few years to try to get that information out. You know, right. That was something that we never really had clear protocols on that were posted for the public to see. Yep. We started a student athlete council this last year. And one of the first meetings that we had was to talk about how finances are mm -hmm. and talk about what officials costs and talk about where gate revenues go, mm -hmm. because that's never changed. But I think a lot of people have misperceptions of what the money is because you watch TV shows that say, or you hear about other schools, well, football gets this money and the snack bar goes to this team where like in our school, that's just not the case. But I think a lot of people don't know that. Right. I think a lot of it's just being clear and getting the information out. The more people know, the less assumptions can be made. Right. And that's something we can definitely do a lot better about at our high school. We're trying to mm -hmm. um, get as much information out as we can so people are clear. But I don't know how you avoid some of the things because as I talk to colleagues of mine, they always feel that's perceived at other places. I'm in a unique position where I'm also coaching the sport that has that perception at most schools. So that's created conflict at times, but we've done the best we can to be honest about where it goes and why it goes. We have a snack bar and a gate at our football games and none of that money goes to the football program. It goes to other programs and we're, and we're proud to be that mechanism that helps do that. But we're also proud that it goes to sports that can use the money as well. I think what I've learned is that 
you do the best you can and you're as transparent as possible. And it's helpful to have some people that you're partnering with to make sure you're, you're checking your own blind spots, right? What are the optics on this? Uh-huh. Given that I am the coach of this sport and uh-huh. making sure that there's the fairness component that we talked about. Now you mentioned the student athlete council that we were chatting about before we got on the broadcast and, and this, that may or may not fit into what I'm about to ask, but I'd love to hear about it anyway. So I'm curious both as the athletic director and institutionally and as the football coach, what's the best thing you do? What has the largest ripple effect on the culture of your football program, on the culture of your school? Something that's a tangible, we do this, it's a non-negotiable, and this is the impact that it's had. I think from the athletic department side, it's something that's been evolving for us. Alignment is a big word in our programs. Mm -hmm. Um, Being aligned philosophically, and then within your programs, being aligned with the head coach from top down, players being aligned in the beliefs of the individual program. Mm-hmm. But as far as our, our program goes, my philosophy from the athletic side is we're really trying to put kids in the best position to be successful. And we talk to our coaches about that all the time. And what, what does that look like? Does that mean that they play equally? Not if it's a position where they can't have success. Are there opportunities to get people in there? Is there a way to build the biggest programs that we have and cast the widest net, be as inclusive as we can? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing I'm most proud of on our campus is how inclusive our coaches are and how we really sell the message hard that we want kids to play multiple sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of coaches say it, but some programs are with a wink and a nod saying, I really want you to do this. And then they organize a bunch of activities that conflict. But at our school, we've really done a great job of that and try to identify coaches that do that. And sometimes coaches don't philosophically align with that and that's okay. And, and there's no hard feelings, but this is probably not the place for those folks mm-hmm. um, based on what our message is. And I know our principal, Mr. Lyons, when he's come in, he's huge on building young men and women of character Mm -hmm. um, and what the C represents for us. Mm -hmm. When people see that teams are going to be really organized, they're going to be really competitive, but they're going to try to do it the right way and and, and behave. And a lot of times when we have a program that doesn't or a team that doesn't, it's too bad, but it's also for us, it stands out. And and for us, when it stands out, that says we're doing a lot of other things right. And that allows us to then focus on that team and what can we do to help Mm -hmm. that coach and help those players. That's on the athletic side. The student athlete council has been a way to identify that to our student athletes Mm -hmm. to try to get them aligned program to program and see each other face to face and talk about problems and talk about what's working. And are they getting that message from their coach? Are they feeling that way in their program? What does that look like? The student athlete council. So we started last spring. Uh, We had two representatives from each team, male and female teams. And we started meeting once a month and talking about First of all, what we're looking for in student athletes, what's working in your program and what's not? What programs do you see on this campus that you say, wow, they're really doing a lot of good things. How are they doing those things and maybe we're not? Or my experience in one sport was this, but then I went to this other sport and God, it wasn't quite that same experience. Oh, it, it wasn't? I didn't know that sitting in my position. Mm-hmm. What's not working? What do you want to see in an event? Mm-hmm. What do you like when you go to another event on campus? Are you having issues with officials showing up? Do you feel like students aren't showing up? You feel like you have a big game and nobody knows about it. We talk about those kind of things. And also, what are you looking for in your teams? And what problems are you having in your teams? What's good about your team? And getting those kids to collaborate and also collaborate with someone who can help them, such as myself, dealing with the adults. Because most of our coaches are off campus, Justin. I don't know about you guys, but most of ours are off campus. They have busy lives. And they may not be unorganized, but maybe they don't have the same time to donate to the program in the off hours that maybe an on-campus coach may or somebody with another job has. Mm-hmm. And then how can we step in as an athletic department and help with that ordering or help with the design of those uniforms or help with getting people to the game or help with coaching with that paperwork? How can we do that 
because a lot of coaches are prideful. You may or may not know, they don't want to ask for a lot of help sometimes in this profession. So um, you're always trying to find ways of how can I support you so you feel like you're not awkwardly having to reach out for help, but you're comfortable accepting suggestions and, and, and help and things like that. In your football program, what's the best thing you do? If you were to leave and go somewhere else, what would you take with you? That's like this, we have to do this. I think it falls under the umbrella of what we believe in our program and, and articulating that and identifying that and then having everything you do fall under that umbrella. So from day one, I've always said we want to have a really organized, hardworking, excuse-free environment where everybody is accountable. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like that was important, that everyone's accountable, coaches, players, support staff. We're all accountable to each other. We're all responsible for doing that. I grew up in an era of coaches always right. Kids are always wrong. And I never wanted to have a program like that. Right. And so everything we do from what we wear on game day to guys don't have their own pair of socks they wear, that we're looking organized that way, that our pregame warmup is organized, that we're at office hours every Thursday in the mornings as a football team during the season, working on things when we could be home until 830 mm -hmm. in the morning to how we get on the bus to our team meal, the cheerleaders and the female student athletes that are involved in sports med eat first. Mm -hmm. All those kind of things are under that umbrella, which right. is not our behavioral traits we're looking for or like core values as a football player between the lines. Mm -hmm. That kind of governs everything we do mm -hmm. and accountability to those things. Mm -hmm. And coaches are just as accountable. We have a tobacco-free campus, so coaches can't show up with chew in their mouth. We don't let our guys wear their hats indoors or their hats backwards. So coaches, we're not on the sideline with our, with our hat backwards. We're all part of the same thing. I think that kind of governs all we do. The single thing that I think helps all of those things within our program and our alignment is we do a lot of practicing together, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll practice our JV and our varsity together. Mm -hmm. So from day one, there's no class system. There's no, you've waited all your time and now you don't have to do anything as a senior or you're the first in line because you're a senior. Mm -hmm. We try to treat people as they're all part of this program. Mm -hmm. And you see in the hallways, the JV guys are talking with the varsity guys, as we tell them every Sunday, but they got to learn the JV guys' names. Yep. You got to get their phone numbers. Mm -hmm. It's not just, hey, kid, hey, brown shirt, hey, blue hat. That's not what we want. And so we make guys go around the weight room and identify everybody's first name. And that's on the player side. And I think as a coach, from a coaching staff side, if I'm going to take it somewhere else, it's just alignment of our coaches and giving them job expectations. What do I want from you and what do I not want from you? And exactly what is your role and what is not your role? Mm -hmm. And how do we help that get to our kids? And I think that's something I didn't, this will probably segue into something else you're going to say, but <laughs> something I never used to do. I just always took it as coach. I told you I needed this and I'm just assuming you're going to do that as opposed to here's what I need. Here's what I don't need. And here's what I'm looking for. And then that's what I'm wanting you to get with the players. And that was never always articulated where you had coaches that could really build trust and build relationships. Mm -hmm. And you had coaches that couldn't. Right. And instead of giving the tools to the coach that couldn't, yeah. you would always look back and say, oh, I need that coach to coach something else. Or I need someone else to coach that position group where we've taken that approach and, and really seen coaches prosper and blossom. And yeah. we haven't had to have a turnover in coaching staff. And because all coaches really genuinely want to do a good idea, but um, sometimes older guys are resistant to change and you got to find ways to chip at that and work with them and let them know it's okay to change. So to that point, the, the importance of practicing together, which you mentioned at a school site like yours, where you have 800 to a thousand kids in a year, depending on the trend line versus us where we have 500 and the interior culture of our school, the, the kids all know each other just by nature of it being a smaller place, the value that's had mm -hmm. and being able to think about all right, if I go all the way back to when I started, right, 
And if I could have a do-over, what advice would I give myself? And what does that look like in a practical standpoint? How do you apply that advice? My first season as head coach, I was really blessed that we had a core group of third-year seniors, and we had a really good group of impactful sophomores in between, and we had a lot of success, and you kind of took the viewpoint of is like, hey, I just push these buttons and we go. You dial up this play and it works. We'll just be really creative, and never spent, besides the stuff I was talking about, didn't practice together, which one of the biggest benefits for our coaches has been JV coaches in a two-level sport that we have don't feel marginalized. JV coaches don't feel, and a lot of times they're not really trying to make stuff up. They're in positions where they get asked questions they don't have the answer to a lot. And if we've not provided that answer in advance, they try to answer it the best they can to try to show that they're confident in front of the kids. And sometimes they'll do something that might not be what you want. And then they feel like, oh, now I did something that the varsity didn't do, and now I'm doing it the wrong way, where it's allowed our coaches and the lower levels to feel included. It's allowed them to work side by side with their position coach on the varsity when they're in the drills, to ask questions themselves. And to their students, it has built the trust in their students for their confidence. Their confidence level rose because they're being viewed as a co-expert in that position or in that thing. And, and that's one of the biggest things with our coaches when we defined it, and we hadn't defined it before, was what we want them to do was have exceptional clarity and build trust. I put together an organizational flowchart, and that was their role. And they all fall equally under the head coach, and they don't oversee any other position. Mm-hmm. They're not coaching any other position groups. So the running back coach should not be yelling instructions about what the wide receiver needs to do and address him during the game or in practice to keep it compartmentalized and to do those two things. And I'm a big believer in Brian and Tim Kite, and I got turned on from them from the Above the Line book. Dan Powers at Pacific Grove shared that book with me a few years back. And I remember us talking afterwards going, there's got to be more to this focus three. There's got to be more to these guys than this book. And where do we find it? And that was when they were just starting to make a presence on social media and dove into that and dove into that and realized, hey, some great quotes came from that. Like, if you permit it, you promote it. If you're not addressing it, you're promoting it happening. And I'm going, well, how, how, how can I fix that? How can I be better at that? And one of the best things that I ever got from them was they're not really experiencing your intentions or experiencing your behaviors. And so can we clearly identify the behaviors that I want from our coaches to go to our kids and we only coach them on that and just catch them doing it right? So many times coaches want to prove competence. Mm-hmm. And that was the biggest thing with our coaching staff is they were always wanting, and, and as a coach, I'm guilty of, you're always trying to prove how much you know. Mm-hmm. And we just made the distinction. You're not here to prove to them how much you know. You being organized mm-hmm. and you give them the information that's supported by the head coach, mm-hmm. that's being echoed by the head coach and supported is going to build your confidence level. They're going to see you as an extension of the head coach mm-hmm. versus giving them different information. So sometimes that kind of cuts at that trust piece that they don't really realize your competency because you're talking about it. And a lot of times it's not really jiving with what other people are saying. And really the other thing with our coaches was talking about the personal trust with student athletes. I went around to our coaching staff and I just said like, how many of the guys in your group, your student athletes in your position group, do you know how many siblings they have or what their names are? Do you know their parents' names? Do you go to their other sports when they play? And I challenged them to do that. And they quickly realized what a different relationship I now have in my, in my position group that I didn't have before, that I might have had by default with a few of my guys mm-hmm. that happened to be more outgoing or happen to have a personality like mine versus what did they have that they didn't have before is like, now I know you on a more personal level and our trust factor is different. Right. And I'm not giving you information that's not helping you. I'm keeping it about that. And that's really allowed our coaches to just keep it about 
that X and O that they need to teach in alignment with what the coach wants mm -hmm. and building that relationship with them every day. And our program has continued to soar after doing that. And that's the thing. Scheme is scheme. I think there's a lot of different things you can do. What are the rules of the school? And when do you offer your summer program? And is there an off-season program? I think all that, all that happens differently everywhere. And you figure that out where you go. But those kind of things is what I would really focus on as a coach from day one. Wealth of information there. You mentioned Tim and Brian Kite. I've been consuming those podcasts on my bike rides the last couple of weeks. And anyone should go and check their information out. It's been really helpful for me and obviously for you over the last couple of years. You also mentioned how are you supporting your athletes in their other endeavors and their family life. And I remember my first year here where I drove to Gonzales to watch a football game just to show up be there, support, mm -hmm. walk the sideline. And mm -hmm. the amount of social capital that gives you in community, not that it should be a transactional experience, but the fact that you're showing up somewhere that's a little bit out of your way goes a long way to building that trust and that rapport with athletes. And you see it around here a lot because we're on the same campus and we have advisees playing certain sports and we try to show up. It's just been really helpful. So I appreciate you sharing that. I was thinking about something while you were, you were talking and reflecting on this entire conversation in that in essence, you coached baseball at Seaside early on, you then got into Carmel and you've essentially been there your whole career. What do you do to build network when you don't necessarily have the, the well-traveled past that others might? How have you continued to stay fresh in your ideas where there might be a little bit of provincialism just by the nature of geography in your experience? On a personal level, I guess I'll start with was we had someone in our community named Peter Burwash. He, he lives in Marina now, but still a local guy who runs Peter Burwash International, one of the largest companies in the world when it comes to coaching tennis. Mm. He had been a, a speaker here at graduation and he had written me, he's one of those guys that'll write you a nice note. That's his big quote is catch people doing it right. Yep. And he wrote me a nice note in my, my third year here. And I said, Hey, like I, you rarely get those. I really appreciate someone doing that. So I contacted him and said, Hey, why don't you, if you're available, come out and watch practice. Mm -hmm. And he came out and watched practice a few days. And I said, Hey, now that you've been here for the game plan all week, you want to come to King city with us on Friday night? And he said, yeah, sure. Rode the bus down and it's been a staple in our program as far as a professional looking at me saying from his lens of only coaching coaches, yep. not telling you, I think you could have thrown the ball there against King city, but more of, Hey, that one time when we got on that guy, the coach needs to follow up or you need to follow up with something positive. Don't leave them on a negative. Mm -hmm. There's times where there's frustration. There's times that things happen, but try to catch those guys doing it right. Yeah. They're going to take that doing it right. And that's going to really stick with them. If all they hear are corrections mm -hmm. and they are never told good job or what's right. And that's exactly how I want it. So I started with that conversation with him the first night and he set up a leadership council in our program and it was just a way for me to reflect and hear other ideas mm. that I, that I can't get from an, from an assistant coach or from an administrator sometimes. And he's been a great sounding board for me over my career on a football side. You're right. I don't have a lot of people that I've worked under or were mentors for you on the football side. So I reached out to one of my former college assistant coaches, Paul Gola, who was the head coach at Bakersfield high school. Mm -hmm. I knew him as a GA when I played at university of Redlands and he was a linebacker coach and really enthusiastic, but a really smart guy and really organized. Mm -hmm. And I knew he was taking rosters of 25 guys and winning CIF titles at Bakersfield High, uh, one of the oldest high schools in the state. And I reached out to him and he just said, come over. We have a, a 6 a.m. practice tomorrow morning in Bakersfield. And so I left my house about 2.30 in the morning and <laughs> drove to Bakersfield and watched their zero period. And 
he was kind of an open book with me as far as here's what I'm looking for. And he was really big for me on, he talks about cost. I said, why aren't you doing this? Or why aren't you doing that? And he says, well, that's too expensive. And I would always say, what does that mean? And he says, I don't have the time during the week to do that. I'm not going to devote 40 minutes of my week to that in practice uh, when I can do 10 minutes of this and 10 minutes of that and 10 minutes of this. And that 30 minutes is much better served. And we may not run things like that or may not practice that. And I take that from a football standpoint, we practice, people see us on special teams and we're pretty good on special teams. We hardly practice special teams. Mm -hmm. We practice them against air. We do a lot of times before practice or a 10 minute period, like it's the expense of doing that. Mm -hmm. And so I've taken that as a coach and try to do things that are going to become expensive for other teams to prepare for us when you take that philosophy. So I've had people like that, that I've been able to dig into. And then obviously as you go, Justin, you build relationships with people in your area. A couple of years ago, 2017, I believe it was, Selena's High was on a great run. They were going into the playoffs. Um, they're getting ready for the CCS title game. And I reached out to Coach Zank, who I've known since I was in elementary school. And I just said, hey, would you mind if I came to practice? Like, we're not in the playoffs or anything. And I, I'm interested in what you guys are doing. And he said, yeah, he sent me a practice plan. I went over. I watched practice, three-hour practice. And, and I saw how are other people doing things? What's working? What's not working? And a lot of people go to clinics and things like that. And they want to adopt every single thing they see. Mm-hmm. And I'm more, at least my management style is that I'm trying to just collect a lot of information, mm-hmm. try to better inform myself before I make the call on what I want to do. Right. And so that's just the way I've been able to do that. I have people come to practice since my first year. They always, you know, can I come to practice? Right. We've had staffs that are in our league, come to practice, come watch us practice. Not that we're doing it right. And, and I find myself asking them, what do you think? what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Do you think that was working? And I've had that from coaches in other sports come from other schools. You know, I've had basketball coaches come. And one of the best advice I got from Dan Powers at PG was, hey, when you guys were conditioning, and I've taken this with me from the day he said it, when you guys were conditioning, a lot of coaches took that as a water break. And it was you and one guy running the conditioning um, for the team versus what if we had them all staggered out there and they're all encouraging those guys and they get their water when the water break is. And so I said, you know what? I never would have seen that. And I love that. We've done that ever since. Yeah, Just yeah. trying to collect those little bits and pieces that may or may not work for you. But no, not been a coach here for 30 years and worked in multiple programs. So my path on that's a little bit different, but just not being afraid. I mean, just with Brian Kite a few years ago, reaching out to him, just saying, hey, would you love to do a workshop at our school? Just a cold call kind of thing. And he just said, yeah, where are you located? Absolutely. I'll do it right after I'm in Santa Ana. I'll fly up and I'll just tag team it after I go to San Jose State. And I just said, let's do it. And all of a sudden he was here. Just trying to reach out and find those things. And then trying to collect that data and see how that can fit in or not fit in your program. So I think that's the important part, right? Is that you and I are at rival schools in theory, right? And we talk all the time. I talk to Dan regularly. And as we get older and and mature as coaches, how do we put that rivalry aside and realize that the kids are what's most important and how can we continue to grow? And that person over there might be the best opportunity for us to grow and to reach into that. I'm going to end on this question because it's something that I think you're uniquely positioned as the athletic director. And I was talking to one of my my good buddies for this pod a couple days ago, who's also an athletic director. And what I'm curious about is either in coaching your own children in their youth sports as they get older, watching Coach Powers coach, or going around practice to practice and going out and pick a sport at your site that you've been observing where you saw something and you were like, oh, that's really good. I need to definitely do that with the football team. Anything of that nature that you've learned that has nothing to do with football, but you saw at these other sports or these other avenues that maybe might not be in the forefront of a young coach's mind, like this is an area where I can mine for ideas. 
couple of things. In my job, I'm uniquely positioned to watch a lot of practices mm-hmm. and to see what teams are focusing on as a layman, obviously coming in as far as the schematics of a sport and what works and what doesn't work, watching both of our basketball programs practice and utilizing every single basket we have in there mm-hmm. for something related where everybody's going at the same time. And even when you're scrimmaging, it just isn't ones against twos. I love seeing teams that do that. Mm-hmm. I saw something unique last year with our girls' soccer program. Our girls' soccer program is going into a playoff game. And our girls' soccer program is pretty good. But physically, our girls, we don't have a lot of girls 5'10", 5'11", where you go up against some of these teams that have the taller girls. Like, it's a physical brand. Mm-hmm. And our coach was showing us videos. Hey, look at these girls on this other team. And, and it looked like a boys' lacrosse match watching this team play. And, and so I went down and watched practice. And there's our coach, who's a former college player, dressed out, playing. There's two of our coaches dressed out, playing. Our coach was going, how can I mimic this for our team? I'm not going to say we can't do it. We're going to try to be physical and get used to those bigger bodies being out there. Mm-hmm. And that was something I thought was really, there was some ingenuity there because so many coaches want to find reasons why when they get in the playoffs, it's just, it's not fair. We're playing this school or this school just has better players than us. It's like, well, how do we attack these people? And so I, I watched that. I just watched that this last spring and I thought, that's really good. I've watched our baseball and softball programs, how they divide up practice and how they utilize specific skills that carry over. And you can get a lot of things done without the whole team coming together Mm -hmm. uh, and get everybody coached. And that's what I like to see is everybody kind of getting coached. And then something I really took from our longtime boys swim coach, Conrad Coors, Mm -hmm. who was here forever and had outstanding teams. Uh, Early in my career, I was so blessed to be around him. He's so knowledgeable, but from a physical standpoint, he would come in and we'd talk and I said, what are you guys doing? I saw the swim sets look different today. And he'd always explain, here's the date on the calendar where we need to peak. Mm. Everything we're doing physically is to peak then. It's not about, it's not about what our times are in the first meet. It's not about whether we scored this many against Stevenson or not in the dual meet of swimming. It's about what are our times? What do our practices look like? How are we structuring the workouts to peak there? And that's something as a coach where I've really relied heavily on our training staff of When are we in full gear? When are we out of pads? When are we just in t-shirts and shorts? Because it's all about, here's where we physically want to have the most guys in the best shape they can when the other teams are physically worn out. And that's one of the great things I've taken um, as a coach. And none of those things are from a, probably taken more from non-football practices and non-football teams than football teams. And, And I love watching sports and I love watching practices more than I probably love watching games. I think that's fascinating and such great advice because Again, when you're early in your career, you're just usually not aware of that, not thinking about how you can do that. I share an office with Cooper, who's our head lacrosse coach, and mm-hmm. often find myself looking at lacrosse film and asking why they do certain things because the game is so similar. But it's fascinating, right? The football coach <laughs> learns a tremendous lesson from the swim coach and yeah. it's priceless. So thank you for sharing that. Golden, thanks for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. I think this is going to be super helpful for anyone that hears it and is really looking for ways to stay relevant and fresh in their program and i really do appreciate you taking the time yeah i appreciate you having me on I look forward to the other ones you're going to be doing I'm trying to get something myself all right man i'll talk to you soon all right thanks thanks for listening if you found this valuable please be sure to rate review and subscribe to the show and give contacts and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support